Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning on this Friday, the 3rd of June, 2022. All right, I want to lead off this morning. Um, Okay, uh, well, here's a good question. Where in the word are you today? My where in the word conversation, I'm actually saving for the top of the next hour, but it never hurts to ask the question, where in the word are you today? Um, I am still roaming around in the passages of Scripture that uh, we talked about briefly yesterday with Kathy Branzell. If you missed that conversation um, about practical prayer um, in the midst of all of the trauma that we are individually and collectively experiencing as a culture, I encourage you to uh, go and listen to the podcast from yesterday's episode of Mornings with Carmen. You can find that at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. It is Forgiveness Month here at Faith Radio. You may um, You may recognize that in the culture there are other ways of Uh, celebrating the month of June or um, living into the month of June. Here at Faith Radio, we are living into forgiveness. Forgiveness is our theme for the month of June. Um, And so let's consider that for just a moment. What does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to believe in redemptive reality? Can people change? Do they change? Do we actually believe that? Do we manifest that in, in our culture Um, On Wednesday, a federal judge ordered John Hinckley Jr.'s full freedom 41 years after he shot President Reagan. Maybe you remember that. I do. Um, Do we believe that a person found guilty, in this case by reason of insanity, um, can be redeemed or at least rehabilitated? That is what a judge has determined. Um, And so uh, having avoided prison, but having spent decades in a mental hospital, John Hinckley Jr. has now been granted his full freedom. The judge said he's been scrutinized, and I deem him to no longer be a danger. Just consider that for a moment. What does redemption look like, or at least rehabilitation? What's the difference? And do we believe it? Do we believe in it? Can people change? Do people change? I would argue that only by the power, uh, the transforming power of the gospel. And so that's um, what we're going to consider in our conversations today. First up, Bruce Ashford. We're going to talk with Bruce about um, policies as a preview to the kingdom of God. Uh, What does Christianity have to do with politics? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Joining us again today, Bruce Ashford. You can find what we're discussing at bruceashford.net. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's great to be back on the show, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So politics as a preview of Christ kingdom. Really? <laughs> counterintuitive, no? Totally counterintuitive. Totally um, contrary to the way a lot of people think about American politics and certainly the way we've experienced them, you know, I don't know, as a bit of a carnival in the last couple of decades. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think most people, anybody who's been awake, you know, at, at all over the past 10 or 20 years to notice the ground kind of shifting beneath beneath us as Bible-believing evangelicals. And uh, the, the, so many things that go averse to the Christian faith have become kind of intuitive and normalized for other Americans that often the things that we believe, type of things we think should be in public policy, or even outside of politics per se, the type of things that we should be normal and we think should should be normal in society are no longer considered normal. And so politics has been, I always say, something like the you know past ten or twenty years, something like the combination between a war a carnival and a Hollywood movie. It's crazy. And uh, one tendency is to walk away from the whole thing, and some people do that. And I won't judge them for that. I mean, maybe they need to. Maybe they, for whatever reason, just uh, just can't handle it. Other people throw themselves in. And, uh, you know, politics becomes a, a, a deep passion and sometimes, unfortunately, becomes something like uh, politics becomes a functional savior. And often once politics becomes savior, then we'll do unethical things. We'll speak and act in ways that are unethical. We'll say, look, politics is right now a very dirty realm. And so you have to fight dirty and you have to act and speak just like the, uh, uh, you know, uh, TV show hosts and radio show hosts. And uh, we have to act out. And so, you know, the, the Bible will give a different view of politics. So um, we got a couple of minutes. I'll, I'll walk through the Bible's story in about two to three minutes. I love and, that. Please. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, the Bible is an unfolding story. It might be 66 books with uh, um, numerous authors and multiple genres, but it's got what we could call a narrative coherence to it. And that means that if you want to understand the Bible and how it fits together, the best way to do so is to understand the story. There's different ways of telling the story, same story, but I want to tell it in four acts today. In Act 1, God created the world, and he created it good. Now, part of God's order if you're in radio land, listen to this. Part of God's order for the world, before there was ever any such thing as sin, is that there would be a, a, a an arena or a sphere uh, uh, for government and politics. Now, if there had been no sin, then uh, government and politics would just involve the organization of our common life. There'd be no police, no military, etc. But, this brings us to Act 2, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, all kinds of evil things, you know, bloodshed and injustice and all of these things, right? Now, when that happened, that didn't automatically make government and politics a dirty realm. Um, you know, the, the realm of government and politics is no more unchristian than the realm of art or science or education or business or sports and entertainment, right? It's, it's a good realm that God created that's been twisted for wrong ends. So that's Act 2. Now, Act 3 is that um, immediately, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a Messiah. Remember, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, um, you know, I'm going to send the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that's a prophecy of Jesus. 
And the rest of the Bible is kind of the triumphant march of God to bring toward bringing that true. And he did his send his son who uh, uh, lived a perfect life and was crucified and resurrected on our behalf. And he actually is now the king of the world, whether we can see it or not whether the world believes it or not, he is actually the king of the world. He sits at the right hand of the father. And this brings us to Acts chapter four. He's going to return one day and make all things right. Okay. And so as Christians, we live in between Acts three and four, the time that, uh, of Christ's first coming and the time of his second coming. And when we interact in any sphere of culture, whether it's education or marriage and family or business or our leisure, or whatever it is we're doing, we should provide people a glimpse of Christ's kingdom, and we should do the same thing in politics. So that's a that's a really quick uh, kind of uh, um, breakdown. Yeah, I think the provisional demonstration of the kingdom of God and the king and his principles, the provisional demonstration of the king and the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, is who we are as Christians in the culture today. I love the, you know, we live between Act 3 and Act 4 of this unfolding uh, redemptive drama that God is enacting over the course of human history. We do believe that Jesus is coming again. Um, we talk about him coming to judge the living and the dead. I like the way you framed it. He's coming to make all things right, um, to set all things the way they should be. Um, and we don't live yet in that reality. We we live between the already and the not yet. And we live in what I like to call, Bruce, the meantime. I mean, there's a reason that we call it the meantime because it's mean, not just because just it's in the middle, but because like it's, it's, it's mean. Um, and so I think those are all such fantastic reminders of, you know, of where we are in the unfolding redemptive narrative of God, um, creation, sin, the promise to redeem through a Messiah, the coming of Christ, and then this this reality of the not yet, Act 4, we're not there yet. He's coming again to make all things right. Um, so helpful, yeah, yeah. such a good, positive perspective. And this is a, you know, if, it's, if the Bible is a dramatic narrative, you know, a drama, uh, he created us to be actors in that drama. And the thing is, um, this is an unfinished drama. So we don't know exactly the details of how things pan out between now and, and the time Christ comes. And so what we do is we train to play our role by looking at the, 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 the story that's gone before us and at the actors who have gone before us, you know, everyone from Abraham to King David to uh, Rahab, you know, to Esther. Um, and, and, and we watch them and we study their moves when they were confronted, when they were playing a role in the drama and didn't have the script written for them. And we imitate them in some ways. And so um, there are lots of biblical examples, lots of Bible verses, lots of stories in the Bible that teach us how to um, act in this grand drama. Mm. I love that. It's so helpful. All right. We're going to continue our conversation with Bruce Ashford in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. We're talking with Dr. Bruce Ashford. You can find what we're talking about at bruceashford.net. Bruce, let's turn to this piece, How to Become Yourself. Um, you know, it always makes me nervous when we talk about becoming our best self, as if that's something that, you know, we on our own can achieve. But we are talking about spiritual transformation in this context. We're also talking about the books we read and how they form us, not just inform us. 
So um, take us into this uh, this experience that you've had over the course of time, um, and then you're sharing life lessons from someone else as well. Yes. You know, I found a book called Becoming Myself by a guy named Irvin Yalom, a uh, psychiatrist at Stanford. He's not a Christian believer, um, but uh, I offer uh, uh, something that he teaches in this book to anybody in Radio Land. Um, I offer, there, there are two things you could, two takeaways from this book. Um, one is just that you have uh, a man who's in his 80s now, maybe 90s, reflecting back in his life and how he grew and developed as a person. So if you're a reader and you like an interesting read, this is a very interesting read. But if you're not, if you don't read the book, the concept I like. And basically what Yalom um, argues, not in exactly these terms, is that um, as human beings, you know, the unexamined life is, is not worth living. That's what Socrates taught. And Yolon believed it. And he shows how he grew and developed as a person. Uh, and often this was through introspection, but often it was through the people that he met. And in his case, mainly his wife, he adored his wife, but then also his client, his patients. You know, he was a, a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And as he would counsel um, his patients in their, in their lives, he learned something about himself. And I think one of the takeaways for me, <clears throat> I'm midlife now, I'm about to turn 48. And so I'm entering into the second act of life, right? So if you view uh, life as having two acts, act one and act two, act one is very important, but also in another sense, when, when you're moving, when we're moving to act two, we can realize, hey, act one is preparation for act two. Life is not over. Act two is just beginning. So what can I learn, you know, from act one? And, um, you know, from, from Yalom, I, I just think what I took from it is an open mind and an open heart to learn about himself. He was uh, forthright about his own character flaws and personality deficiencies. And I think we have to, I'm going to use another catchword that's kind of, you know, if it's not stated the right way, is, is averse to the Christian faith. We have to love ourselves enough to accept what we're actually like at this point in time. That's the only way we can become more like the way God intended us to be is by recognizing what we're actually like. Um, when the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it's actually saying that we ought to have an appropriate form of love and care for ourselves, right? Because mm -hmm. if we're not supposed to, it would be saying, uh, don't love your neighbor just like you don't love yourself. And so we have to have the right kind of love and embrace of who God made us to be, including our flaws. We don't have to like our flaws or want to continue them, but, but to recognize them and then to be willing to grow and develop out of it. And that way we don't get stuck, you know, in midlife or in our 40s or 50s. We want to take every moment that God has given us and we want to make the most of it. And so that's why I enjoyed the book. It's a great story and I learned a lot. So, Bruce, you're going to love Oz Guinness's new book, uh, The Great Quest, because he talks in there about um, the examined life, the unexamined life and the examined life. And he and he wanders through the great quest of an examined life. Um, and it is oh, wow. super engaging. It's very accessible. We just had him on a couple of weeks ago to talk about it. And so I have it kind of top of mind when you as, as soon as you shared the Socrates quote or made reference to it. I'm like, oh, that's totally, that's, that's right where Oz Guinness starts the conversation. Um, and he, you know, and he talks about um, getting, even getting to the place where you ask the question, 
right? And so for a lot of people, um, they're just they're just going through life. They're not even really asking the big question. They're not on a quest. They're just living out their days as if there's no meaning or purpose to any of it. Um, and then something something happens um, for whatever reason. They start asking the question. Um, and sometimes that that trigger event is horrible and traumatic. Sometimes it's extraordinarily positive. Sometimes it is, I mean, as simple as why are there so many shades of green? Like, <laughs> like right? sometimes it's um, it's it, it it's the inexplicable nature of love. I don't I don't have a reason for that. I don't what what is my you know, so that would be the C.S. Lewis, like the question that brought him up short like joy or love, right? So yeah. um, it, it, anyway, it's a, it, it's a provocative place to be as apologists for Christ at this point in human history because people are starting, I think, again, to ask the questions of the great quest, and we expect them to be further along that journey than they are. You know, an interesting thing for us personally, too, is a part of introspecting and uh, learning from life is that often we don't know a disaster from a blessing. Mm. And what I mean is that when we experience negative circumstances, when other people treat us the way they shouldn't, when things happen to us, they're out of control. We've got some lessons we've got to learn. And one of those is that we can't control other people. We can't control other things. We can't control uh, the past. What we can control is our response. And the thing about our response is that pain it, it, the thing that we want to avoid, which is pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, is often life's greatest teacher, that pain is the gateway toward um, immense personal growth. Um, and, and so um, Yalom talked about that in his book. The Bible talks about it in a, in a number of different ways. We don't know a disaster from a blessing. Like imagine that you're watching television and the television, you know, focuses in on a hand. All you see is a hand with a knife in it. And the knife is going towards another person's abdomen. And so our first thought might be, this is a murder that's getting ready to happen. But what if the, the uh, camera lens pulled out backwards further and you saw that this is a doctor with a scalpel? getting ready to perform a, a, a surgery to remove a cancer. It changes the perspective. So um, just like we may not know a, a murder from a surgery, uh, we don't know always a disaster from a blessing. And God works through the circumstances of our life, the things that other people do to us, how they relate to us, the things that are out of our control. He uses those things to grow us. And if you look in the Bible, Times of pain were times of enormous growth. I mean, if you look at King David, his times of pain, his own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then the consequences of it was a gateway for growth. Um, Job is a great example. Look at all the things that happened to Job that he didn't ask for. But it was a time of immense growth. And so don't waste your pain, I think, is a good way of putting it. Mm, that's so helpful. Bruce, as always, thank you so much. That's Bruce Ashford. You can find him at bruceashford.net. You also find him on Twitter at Bruce Ashford. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio.
Well, have you heard? It is hurricane season. Hurricane season. Yep. June 1 to November 30. Well, I mean, you know, Atlantic hurricane season. It's not hurricane season in other places in the world. We call it hurricane season here because this is the season during which um, massive systems that are swirling around move over increasingly warm water and then express themselves upon the land here in the southeastern part of the United States. So the first name storm of the season is expected to spin itself up to uh, tropical storm strength later today. And when that happens, it will be called Alex. The fact that we name storms, I think, is a little bit curious. Um, You know, anything that we can name, we then think has some sort of will of its own, um, that it has some sort of expressive characteristics. Let's be very, very clear. Um, a storm is inanimate. It does not have its own will. Um, it, it is a phenomenon of the way nature works on this side of the fall. It is a part of all creation groaning with eager longing for man's redemption. So uh, Florida is the state that needs to be preparing itself for uh, the potentiality of Tropical Storm and or Hurricane Alex, depending on what happens once it passes over Cuba and into the Gulf of Mexico and then swings around um, and sets its sights on the the peninsula we call Florida. The worst of the weather um, for this particular storm is actually not going to be at the center. Um, sometimes we talk about, you know, the strength of the storm intensifying as the storm uh, you know, circles more intensely in upon itself. Well, this storm's not going to be that well organized. It's really early in the season. Um, and so the worst of the weather is not going to actually be at the center of the storm, but out on the periphery. And it occurs to me that how true that is in many of the storms of life. We tend to focus on, you know, the acute center, the person um, who is victimized, um, the person whose life is lost. Um, But there are a lot of people affected downstream or in the concentric circles or the rippling effect um, of that particular storm as it ripples out. I'm thinking here um, of the dentist in Uvalde who we've now heard from. He's lost 10 of his patients. When, When a gunman entered Robb Elementary School and took the lives of those precious children and their teachers, um. The ripple effect is great. I'm thinking here of the family and the friends of the surgeon and the and the other doctor and the employee of the medical facility and the other patient who was killed when a gunman entered a medical facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to take revenge on a surgeon who failed to alleviate his pain. The ripple effect, the concentric circles, the the downstream effects of that are incredible. That storm Um, has a center, but it also has uh, a lot of waves of pain emanating from it. I'm thinking of the parents of the four children killed in a summer cabin in Texas, first couple days of summer, by an escaped convict who stole their truck and was subsequently killed by Texas law enforcement. A lot of concentric circles of pain going to emanate from that story. Waves of violence and grief and loss and pain And for many people, no relief in sight. I wish I could tell you that things on the horizon were bright. Uh, And then, and 
But I've read the end of the book, specifically um, what Jesus and others have to say about what's coming. I've also read the headlines of the day. And storms are gathering. Storms are gathering on the horizon. You'll remember the conversation we had with Jim Dennison about his book, The Coming Tsunami, but I'm also thinking about Al Mohler's book, The Gathering Storm. I'm I'm thinking about, I mean, uh, you know, even uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon sees um, uh, a hurricane on the horizon. He, he says it's economic and we need to brace ourselves for it. Um, but there, there are storms coming and they won't just, the power of them and the intensity of them won't just be at the center of the storm, but in concentric waves that emanate from them. We as people of faith need to be prepared not only uh, for ourselves, but to serve the culture of which we are a part. This is our day and our time. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. You may be saying to yourself, it's just the news is so heavy. Um, You and I uh, may have just learned together of the shooting outside of a church in Ames, Iowa last night. Three people dead, including the gunman. Um, Maybe you just heard about the shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a medical facility where a man who was frustrated that his pain had not been alleviated by the surgeon uh, whom he sought to kill, but he also killed other people in addition to the person he thought was responsible for uh, the failure to relieve his pain. You may be asking yourself, um, where's the good news in the midst of all this bad news? Um The good news is always the light shining in the darkness. Always. It's ever-present. It's always shining. The darkness will not overcome it. This happens to be the darkness of our particular day and time. And you say to yourself, well, this isn't the only darkness. There's there's darkness all around. Um, The the stories that we hear of violence and bloodshed, the stories that we hear of war, the stories that we hear of... um, physical and sexual violence, like on and on and on. It's it's too much to bear. It's too much to bear. Yes, it is too much to bear. There's no question about that. Christ alone is sufficient. When Christ dies on the cross for the sin of the world, he's dying for every act of violence you're hearing about today. He's dying for every sin committed one against the other. And he's dying for every variety of sin, including the the hate we harbor in our hearts. So where's the good news in the midst of all the bad news? I want you to look for um, the stories of redemption, the stories of forgiveness, the stories of transformation, because they are out there. Let me remind you of uh, um, Kenan Lowe. You know, we we always hear the stories. I mean, obviously, we hear the stories when there is a mass shooting at a high school. I'm not sure that we hear about, and we certainly don't highlight or talk enough about, um, those times when a person intervenes 
and a school shooting doesn't happen. A school shooting is prevented. Or in another location, this just happens to be uh, a story about uh, a, a school shooting that was prevented in um, in Oregon. So Keenan Lowe grew up in Gresham, Oregon. He played football for the University of Oregon, and then he started coaching in the NFL. Uh, and then his best friend from high school, a man named Taylor Martinick, died of an opioid overdose. And Keenan Lowe talks about the need in his own life to go back to Oregon and his desire to influence the lives of high school students, to seek to prevent in the lives of others what happened in the life of Taylor Martinick. And so he started coaching football at Park Rose High School. And it was there in 2019 that um, with a hug, Keenan Lowe stopped a young man with a shotgun before um, he entered the school and um, took out his grief and his rage and his anger on other students. So in on May 18th of 2019, Portland police said they arrested an 18-year-old, Angel Granados Diaz, um, following reports of a student who walked into a classroom at Park Rose High School in Northeast Portland carrying a shotgun. Um, We didn't hear a lot about this story, right? Well, that's because there were no injuries. The firearm was never discharged. Keenan Lowe, a former Oregon Ducks football star, walked up to Diaz and hugged him. He hugged him. He said at the time, I had no idea I would one day have to put my life on the line like I did yesterday for my students. But when confronted with the test that the universe presented me, I didn't see any other choice but to act. Keenan Lowe on Twitter on May 18th of 2019 said, thank God I passed. I spent the last 24 hours being more appreciative of my family and realizing we have a serious problem. I am blessed to be alive and extremely happy my students are safe. I'm not sure what's next. I haven't had time to really think about that. But I sure want to be a part of the solution to the problem. We don't often hear the good news stories when, you know, put air quotes around this. Nothing happens. Nothing happened at Park Rose High School, right? (laughs) Wrong. Something extraordinary happened. Keenan Lowe put his life on the line and in an act of love, in a demonstration of love, he prevented an act of carnage. I'm encouraged today to consider the ways in which you and I, every single day, to look people in the eye who feel unseen, to speak words of comfort and grace to people who never hear their name spoken in love, to walk across the room or across the aisle or down the street or whatever, across the parking lot, just to say to somebody, hey, you okay? You okay? Divine tenderness. Divine tenderness is what I'm talking about here. 
I remember a prayer that um, is included in the prayers of John Bailey. If you don't know um, Scottish, I mean, he's been dead a long time, but a Scottish minister named John Bailey wrote this book of of prayers, and I I love several of them. They've been helpful and encouraging to me. Maybe this will be helpful and encouraging to you today, um, you know, as you practically pray for the headlines of the day. Oh, on the subject of practical prayer. I actually did like a 15-minute teaching video on how to practically pray. So many people ask, like, all right, you talk a lot about praying (laughs) for people and situations. Like, how do I practically do that? So if you go to um, Faith Radio's YouTube page, so if you go to MyFaithRadio.com and you click on the little YouTube icon, that'll take you to Faith Radio's YouTube page. And on there, it's also on Faith Radio's uh, Facebook page, you can see this, like, I don't know, 15, 16 minute video on how to practically pray that um, that's posted there featuring yours truly. That'd be me. Um, But here is a prayer by John Bailey that I find um, very sensitive and appropriate for the days in which we live. Helpful and encouraging. Maybe it will encourage you today as well. Oh, Lord. Your divine tenderness always outsoars the narrow loves and kindnesses of earth. Grant me today a kind and gentle heart toward all that live. Help me to take a stand against cruelty to any creature. Help me to be actively concerned for the welfare of little children, those who are sick, and of the poor. Remembering that what I do for the least of these, brothers and sisters, I do for Jesus Christ my Lord in whose name I pray. Amen. Let us comfort one another today with the comfort with which we have been comforted, the very comfort of Jesus Christ. Let us be agents of grace and ambassadors of the King and the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Let us sow peace as we go. And by all means, let us pray. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, for uh, Mary or Anne Marie, um, who texted in, I will send you the direct link um, on my YouTube page now to the book club episode one introduction to uh, speak the truth, how to bring God back into every conversation. So I have a YouTube page. The video of the Facebook Live is now posted there um, or on Facebook at Reconnect with Carmen. Um, it should be posted there as well, but I'm like you. I don't exactly know how to find videos on Facebook very easily either. So, uh, Anne-Marie, you're not alone. Um, so thanks for texting in, and thanks for your interest in my Wednesday evening book club um, where we are going through the chapters of Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. Um, so abortion sanctuaries. I, I, I mean, I saw this language, and I thought to myself, Oh, we are in a place that is so confused, um, inside out and upside down. So there are these U.S. cities that have become, and again, you got to put quotes around this, abortion sanctuaries. And I feel like it's really important to ask um, when we read this kind of headline. So here's the here's the top line of this article that I'm looking at. With the Supreme Court expected to overturn Roe v. Wade this month, a growing number of local governments 
um, have preemptively declared themselves, quote, sanctuary cities that will ignore or circumvent any abortion restriction passed by pro-life legislators. So these are largely Democrat-led cities in largely red states. So that's what's going on, um, and it's an internal struggle within states like mine. I live in the state of Tennessee, a largely red state. Um, We have a very uh, Democrat city, Nashville among them, Um, and we already have uh, people within the city saying that if Roe v. Wade is overturned and the state of Tennessee enacts laws now on the books just waiting to be um, enacted or actualized in terms of restricting abortion access in the state, um, that the city of Nashville is going to declare itself a sanctuary city. All right, so I want to talk about sanctuary cities and what that really means. So the text that you want to uh, have the Lord bring to mind here is from Numbers chapter 35. And you say to yourself, I'm not sure I've even read the book of Numbers, certainly not lately. I thought that was just the book about who begat who, begat, begat, begat. Yeah, well, there's more in the book of Numbers than just the the begatting part. Um, And so Numbers chapter 35 talks about cities of refuge. They were sanctuaries to which people who accidentally killed someone else could flee. So I just want you to highlight one, one particular note there. A city of refuge or a sanctuary city in the Old Testament was a place that a person could flee to if they had accidentally killed someone else. So it's expressly not relevant in the conversation about abortion. And these people who want to make their cities abortion sanctuaries are saying, you can come here and purposefully kill the innocent life within you. It, it's such a perversion of the biblical notion of a sanctuary city. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to even articulate the the perversion here of the language. In the Bible, a city of refuge or a sanctuary city was a place to which you could flee if you had accidentally killed someone else. There were six sanctuary cities located throughout Israel, three on each side of the Jordan River. Um, and so uh, even if you made it to a sanctuary city, by the way, or a city of refuge, you still had to undergo a trial. And if you were found guilty, um, then you could remain in the city. In But anyway, it, it, the rules are all spelled out in Numbers 35, and it's a little bit complicated. But um, the reality is that it was a place from which you were essentially hiding from the blood avenger of the person you had accidentally killed. Um, in this case... Fast forward to 2022 in the United States of America, people who are talking about um, U.S. cities becoming, quote, abortion sanctuaries is such a perversion of the biblical idea of a sanctuary city. What they are talking about is people could come to their city and kill the innocent life within them and not live under the penalty of the law of the land even in the state where the city uh, is located. It's it's such craziness. I, I can't, it's hard to say. All right, so legally, it's actually hard to know um, what might happen um, 
because, again, we don't actually know what the Supreme Court has decided in the Dobbs case related to um, the historic Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion across the country. And again, let's remind ourselves that even if even if the Supreme Court determines in the Dobbs case um, that the Constitution does not um, expressly guarantee the right of an individual to access abortion in the United States of America or throughout the United States of America, what it means is we return to a patchwork of laws across the country where every state and the people of every state determine through their elected leadership what the law will be in their particular state. What these cities are saying is we will not abide by the laws of our state. We will create for ourselves um, laws within the state that are contrary to the law of the state. It is, um, it is going to be an interesting struggle. So I lift all of that up today so that when you hear the word sanctuary city, you'll be equipped to say, hey, you know what? The Bible actually talks about that in Numbers 35. That's where the language of sanctuary city or city of refuge comes from. And I mean, are you aware like what the Bible actually says about a sanctuary city? Because it was historically a place where people could go if they had accidentally killed someone um, to be safeguarded against the vigilant, vigi, mm-hmm, vigilantism, maybe that's the right way to say that, um, you know, of the of the family of the person who had been accidentally killed until the trial took place. So that's what it means in its original um, context. And I think it's important for us to know that as Christians. All right. Um, President Biden did deliver a speech urging lawmakers last night to pass gun control laws across the country. Um, He called for a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Uh, It was in effect some 20 years ago, and he would like to see it reinstated. He said if that cannot happen, if we cannot have an outright ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, he would at a minimum uh, like to see the purchasing age for semi-automatic weapons uh, be raised from 18 to 21. He also called for a strengthening of background checks for the safe storage and red flag laws to be enacted and um, for the immunity, which shields gun manufacturers from liability, to be repealed. Um, of all of those things, I think the last one is uh, least likely. Um, I do think that we are potentially headed um, for a strengthening of laws related to background checks, red flags, safe storage, um, and the increase of the purchasing age for semi-automatic weapons uh, to be raised from 18 to 21. So I think there are some reasonable things coming in terms of gun safety um, and gun storage and gun ownership, but I don't think that we are likely headed toward uh, a ban on any any sort of uh, of weapon, just based on the current constituency of the U.S. Congress. All right, let's take um, one more brief pause. When we come back, um, we're going to um, talk a little bit. Oh, it's Friday. Let's do the farm report. That's up next. The Friday farm report up next on Mornings with Carmen. The Farm Report. The Farm Report. Yay! It's Friday. Friday. All right. Here's the Friday Farm Report. 
the first fruits are in. Yes, it is uh, It is a good day to be a LaBerge um, because the cherry crop, okay, I don't know. I, I don't know if we've ever, ever gotten actual cherries off of our two cherry trees because normally the birds get them all. Um, but come to find out if you... Um, if you allow yourself to go totally hillbilly and you put some reflective items, oh, you know, uh, tin pie plates, little strips of bright, shiny mylar, whatever. If you put them in your cherry trees, come to find out the birds will not eat your cherries. So anyway, bumper crop of cherries and blueberries, huge blueberries. The blueberries this year are as big as the end of my thumb. They're just giant We also have uh, the promise of grapes and peaches, plums and apples. So first fruits, first fruits, Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with juice. Oh, and in less positive news, Millie did take down a day-old fawn yesterday in the woods. However, however, Jim was there on the scene to save the day. There you go. That is your Friday Farm Report here on Mornings with Carmen. we got another hour up next. Stay tuned here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.